From NPR News in New York, this is the Bryant Park Project. Overlooking historic Bryant Park in Midtown Manhattan, live from the NPR studios, this is the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. News, information, bargaining. I'm Allison Stewart. It is Wednesday, July 23rd, 2008. And usually Wednesday is the day you really look forward to in the week. You're like, yes, we're halfway through the week. It's almost the weekend. And any other week we'd all feel that way. But when it's the weekend, that means there'll be no more original Bryant Park Project episodes. Obviously, we're in our last week, and uh, we're going through the stages of grief this week with you very publicly trying to get through this tough time. Stage number three, bargaining. When you actually think you can change things, if you just appeal to the person who is taking away whatever you have. Uh, The BPP's Caitlin Kenny will be in the studio to help us out, and we actually have a response to our bargaining from the interim CEO of NPR, brave enough to come on our blog, considering how some of you feel about the way things are going. We'll talk about that as well. Also on the show today, why is America's train system so broken? I love to take a train. We used to have a joke in college that you could outrun the Northeast Corridor service. Uh, One journalist took a ride from coast to coast over 70 hours on the trains to find out what's going on. He's got some ideas on how to fix it and why that's a really good idea for the environment. Also, we'll be talking a lot about Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker. Many critics think he might get an Oscar nomination and possibly win the award. We'll talk about the likelihood of such a thing with Tom O'Neill. Posthumous Oscars, that's coming up. Also, a musical performance from the band Dr. Dog. They were in the studio last week. All of that is coming up on this, the third to last ever of the Bryant Park Project. But first, let's get some headlines from the BPP's Mark Garrison. This is NPR. Thank you, Allison. Dolly is set to hit the Texas-Mexico border today. It grew from tropical storm to Category 1 hurricane. Brownsville, Texas is one of the towns in the line of fire. Mayor Pat Omada says they're ready. The city is prepared to uh, go into low-lying areas and pump out where there's flooding when the storm hits. And uh, we have uh, made arrangements to house uh, people's pets if needed. Forecasters expect Dolly to get stronger and dump up to 15 inches of rain. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice met North Korea's top diplomat today. She called it a good meeting. It's been four years since such a meeting happened at this high level. They met in Singapore along with top Asian leaders. The talk is North Korea's nuclear program. They focus on North Korea verifying its commitment to dismantle it. The U.S. wants Iran's nuclear activity to change also. Now, a few days after the U.S. joined nuclear talks with Iran, a response from its president. Roxana Saberi has more from Tehran. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad said Iran has chosen its path and it will not retreat one iota in the face of oppressing powers. Six major powers, including the U.S., have offered Iran economic and other incentives. In return, they want Iran to halt its most sensitive nuclear work, a step Tehran has so far refused to take. Instead, Ahmadinejad said if they come forward based on law and justice, Iran would negotiate on what he called important global issues and that it would cooperate in solving humanity's problems. He also praised Washington's participation in last Saturday's nuclear talks with Iran in Geneva. He said it was a step toward recognizing Iran's right to acquire nuclear technology. Tehran claims it wants nuclear energy to make electricity, not bombs. 
Roxanne Saberi reporting from Tehran. Leaders of a Texas polygamist compound now face sexual assault charges. A grand jury indicted Warren Jeffs and four followers. Texas authorities raided the compound in April, taking more than 400 children into custody. A court ruled that went too far and ordered the kids reunited with their parents. A Utah court has already convicted Jeffs. He's now jailed in Arizona, awaiting trial on other charges. It's not exactly a Zen Cohen, but it's a question we all meditate on during shopping. Paper or plastic? If that is a tough one for you, move to L.A. Starting in 2010, the city council makes the choice for you. A new law bans plastic bags from stores, and it's BYOB. If you don't bring your own bag, you pay a quarter for each paper or biodegradable bag. The city says more than two billion plastic bags are used there every year. That is the news for the moment. More online at npr.org. This is NPR. What a country. Now you'll see it. Take the train and just lean back. Cause you'll get to go from downtown right to downtown when you go Amtrak. The glory days of passenger rail travel may not be over. Amtrak is expecting another record-breaking year. Last year, a record high number of passengers, nearly 26 million of them, rode on the rails on Amtrak trains. And the National Railroad Passenger Corporation expects to beat that number handily this year. So is it the ease of going from downtown to downtown, as the commercial says? Well, actually, I'm guessing it probably has a lot to do with high gas prices. A happy, fun travel experience? What's it really like to ride the rails on Amtrak? Ben Jervie tried it out. He's a contributing writer to Good Magazine. Hi, Ben. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. As a journalist, what did you hope to find out on this trip? What were you looking to discover? I was trying to figure out what is the condition of American passenger rail. Um, I work a lot in the sustainability field and report a lot about environmental and sustainability issues. And and I personally see uh, trains as being a a very essential solution, a transportation solution for, you know, our our, new 21st Mm -hmm. century uh, and a new energy economy. But nobody ever considers taking the train. Um, Certainly none of my friends do. And, and, you know, most of the people I talk to, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's considered a novelty. Um, And I just really wanted to figure out why. Um, you know, what's wrong with it, what's broken, look into the history a little bit and uh, see, possibly, try to get an an idea of uh, how things could be better moving forward. Tell people about your trip, where you went, from where to where, uh, how many miles and how long it took. Let's get the basics out. I started this trip uh, right here in New York City at Penn Station. And uh, the, the ultimate destination was Oakland, California, the Bay Area train doesn't actually get quite into San Francisco. You have to you end in Oakland to take a bus across. Uh, it's a, a over 3,000-mile trip. It's uh, If the trains make their schedule, it takes about 77 hours. Um, it, it, it travels along two long-established railroads. The first is the Lakeshore Limited from New York City to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Then you exchange to the California Zephyr. And I love these romantic <laughs> uh, rail, rail route names. Uh, the Zephyr goes from Chicago all the way out to Oakland. You brought up a lot of interesting parts. Let me, let me unroll them a little bit. Uh, you said 77 hours and 15 minutes if on time. I love the train. It's rarely on time. It's true. It's um, the the biggest complaint and uh, and most common thing you'll hear from from regular Amtrak travelers is that that it's uh, it never makes its marks, and uh, it, especially so when you get out of the Northeast corridor. There are that? some more dependable routes up here in the Northeast. Amtrak owns some of the more tracks 
uh, that they travel on here in the Northeast. But um, once you once you get out west and, and along some of these old uh, freight lines, the, these freight privately owned uh, rail lines that Amtrak is forced to travel on, they're sort of beholden to the you know private companies' um, schedules, and and it really slows down the process. Were you frustrated at all during this trip? I mean, it's a long time to spend on a train, even for a journalistic endeavor. Well, I'll tell you, it's 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 comfortable. I I like the train. I think it's a great way to travel. I think it's it it. But you need to have the time. It's it's uh, you know not that practical if you're traveling long distance, unless you 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 sort of integrate it into uh, the part of the part of the journey. If if the journey becomes part of the experience, part of the trip. I, I I was getting a little stir crazy towards the end, to be sure. The last day or so from Salt Lake City and on to, onward to California was drew drew out long a little bit. We're talking to Ben Jervy, a contributing writer to Good Magazine. Ben spent uh, well over seventy seven hours on trains going from the East Coast to the West Coast. You said there are four different kinds of travelers on the trains these days. What are the groups? There are the thrifty, the folks traveling these sort of medium distance uh, intercity routes that, that, that for really sort of marginal cost savings, maybe 50, 75 bucks cheaper than it would be to fly. Mm-hmm. Um, there are um, the those who are afraid of flying. And um, there, that I was actually surprised to, to see how many there were. If you are looking to find a collection of people <laughs> who are afraid of airplanes, this is the place. Um, there are... An incredible group of people that, that absolutely fascinated me that, that describe themselves sort of alternately as, as railroad junkies, train nuts, or, or uh, rail fans, which is mm-hmm. sort of their lingo. Um, and these are just passionate, really rail aficionados. They can tell you the history of the rail. They, 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 you, you sit down for a beer with one of them and you're talking for hours about the history of trains. Really interesting. Um, the majority of people who take the train, I found, were really there for the experience. These are the people who are considering, you know, this trip to be part of their vacation. They're they're building it in. They're they're the, the rail experience of traveling, seeing America mm-hmm. from the train. It it, it um, really does have this romantic, um, you know, connotation for a lot of people. And 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 I think that, uh, you know, Amtrak you know greatly benefits from that. Well, let's look into the history. Amtrak is somewhat of a boondoggle. Uh, yeah, it, it was exactly it, it, precisely. It was basically formed out of the the, the dregs of um, the, uh, the 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 failed po- portions of uh, private freight mm-hmm. rail companies. They they were offering passenger rail service through the '60s. It got. Um, you know, very they lost all their profits in that. People started flying, people started driving, um, and it was very costly and cutting into their profits. And, and in order to save the rail companies, to keep them moving the freight that powered the economy, um, President Nixon's administration basically said, "We will take on all of your passenger rail." You know, these unprofitable mm-hmm. segments of these businesses, and it was formed as a you know quasi-public for-profit corporation that had. The history of never turning profit. So it was kind of, um, you know, it was kind of cursed from from birth. When we're looking forward, we've obviously with stories about bridge collapses and the like. How is the infrastructure from your reporting? How is the infrastructure of the rail system? Is that part of the problem of why it's late all the time and yeah, it's why old. people don't think about it? It's it, just old. It's old. It's the same as it has been for years. We haven't laid new new train tracks, real high speed tracks in Europe. Mm-hmm. There. 
you know, they run on these maglev yeah. or electric tracks. And, and you know, they just tested a, a train in France at 350 miles per hour. They run regularly at 250 miles per hour throughout Europe and, mm-hmm. and in Japan. Um, you know, our, our really sterling example here in the States is, is the Acela, and it runs for... That's a, the sterling example? And it runs for a, a 150 Eek. miles per hour for a 15-minute span exactly. in Connecticut. So it's, it's, it's really, you know, to call it high speed is a stretch even. What kind of investment would need to be made to help the rail help rail service reach the goals that you have for it right. in terms of uh, being better for our future for our environment just and just plainly being a nicer way to go right i um I'm no transportation expert, but I feel like a short term investment in Amtrak is a good idea because Americans are finding it now and and they need to remember the rail as mm-hmm. a viable form of transportation. So increasing service and trying to increase reliability in, in the short term. But with this system that they have now, it's never going to get to that next level where people are really where it's where it's really going to be the answer. And I think it would take I think it would require a um, you know public investment on new tracks, new 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 lanes, mm-hmm. new new uh, new routes, um, real high speed tracks and these high density corridors um, that you know, these 500-mile or less corridors that, that could really move a lot of people and, and you know, relieve uh, the airline traffic and, and, and interstate traffic. Ben Jervy is a contributing writer to Good Magazine. Thanks for sharing your rail stories with us, Ben. Oh, thanks for listening. The Kubler-Ross model, you know what it is? About 40 years ago, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she introduced the five stages known as the five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Obviously, we're in the last week of this fine program, and we've been working our way through the five, as many of our people in our audience have. Monday, we talked about denial. Yesterday, it was anger. Today, we're going to discuss bargaining. And, of course, we had to bargain with each other for what song to play. There's been a big debate in the BPP newsroom in terms of the best song to play to express this. Is it this? If you or should the best song in the world today to express bargaining be this? ABBA versus Cheap Trick. The debate is on coming up on the Bryant Park Project. Also coming up on the rest of the show, we'll talk a little bit to the band Dr. Dog. They come out of Philadelphia. And we'll also discuss the possibility of an Oscar for Heath Ledger for his role as a Joker in The Dark Knight. Tom O'Neill from the LA Times will join us. He's actually going to be in the studio. I can see him through the window right there. Real life. You are real. You do exist. Yes. Stay with us here at the Bryant Park Project from NPR News.
Okay, welcome back to the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. We are online all the darn time at npr.org slash Park. I'm Allison Stewart. Joining me in the studio, our special guest rambler, BVP editor Trisha McKinney. We call this the news you can't really use, but Trisha... I actually think you can use this. I can use some of this news for sure. sure. Uh, t- uh, a, amuse yourself, and B, entertain others, or C, a Google or two. Okay. Yes, yes, okay. I agree. Let's hit the music. The first one, it will make you giggle because this subject is always funny in my opinion. Yes, yes. And, um, and most 10-year-old boys' opinions. Uh, oh, hmm, I must be a 10-year-old boy. <laughs> you and me. This is a story I was born to tell. So there is a profile in the British newspaper The Guardian today of a vaudeville-style performer called Mr. Methane. He calls himself a flatulist. I would call him a fartiste. <laughs> His talent is that he can fart at will. He's actually been on Howard Stern. Oh, yes, he I, has. Yes. Oh, yes, he has. And the news peg is that Mr. Methane is going to be performing at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival next month. Sometimes he calls himself Mr. Methane. Yeah, I Sometimes. think he's got that accent, Mr. Methane. I call him Mr. Methane anyway. Uh, so the reason I was born to tell this story is I have, for years, I have been interested in and at times obsessed with his fartistic predecessor, who's a French music hall performer from the 19th century. His name, he was called Le Pedoman. And he was a, he was this middle class guy. His name was Joseph Pujol. And he claimed that one day when he was a kid, he was out swimming and suddenly started taking quantities of seawater in his backside. He oh. thought he was going to die. He swam to shore. He The water came out. He's like, what's happening to me? So according to his biography, which, of course, I read, that is how he became aware of his amazing sphincter. I like that you have that in quotes. Well, it's from the book. Yeah. Uh, so the logical yeah. next step for this guy is a stage act. So, you know, and of course, no one's ever really seen this act because there were no motion pictures with sound, so all you can rely on are descriptions of what these performances were like. People apparently laughed so hard they had to be escorted out by, you know, escorted out. They would faint. And mm-hmm. So anyway, he was very classy. He wore a white tie and tails. Oh, and he really? would stand up on stage and with this kind of classy facade, and then he would do things like suck water out of a bowl with his behind and expel it back in. Uh, he always cleaned himself before every performance. He would put a tube in there and use it to play a flute. <laughs> He did fart impressions of people, animals, things going on. I love this act. I once worked on a play about this act. <laughs> Where is this going? With the Flying Karamazov <laughs> brothers. And they recreated his act, but they had to use, like, gas canisters to do it. So, anyway, back to Mr. Methane. He is not highbrow like Lepetaman. He, he wears green spandex with a bright purple bottom. He lays down. He spreads his legs. He puts a microphone up to his behind. Uh, you know, Howard Stern type stuff. But, anyway, here's Mr. Methane playing green sleeves. <laughs> I'm going out with a bang, I guess. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> this is my favorite part about She's the editor of the show. She's the one that's supposed to keep us in line. I'm supposed to keep us classy, but wow. oh my goodness. I'm so happy. I love it. You said you were born to tell that I story. I was. I love this story. I've known you a long time. I never knew that. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> the next story. Uh, hip-hop star Nas. He's going to help protest Fox News or what he calls Obama smears. 
He's joined a group uh, called colorofchange.org, also part of moveon.org. They're going to deliver a petition today of over half a million signatures saying that Fox has been involved, Fox News specifically, has been involved in what Nas and the group calls race baiting and Obama smears. Remember when they called the uh, terrorist fist jab? They yeah, described yeah, yeah, Michelle yeah. Obama and Barack Obama at the, uh, when he gave his big speech. And I think that was in one lower third. I mean, I don't No, she said it. Oh, Edie Hill said, said it. Okay. Uh, there oh, right, was also promo, right. Ob- uh, Obama's m- wife as baby mama was the lower yeah, third yeah, yeah. graphic. Um, now, the reason that this group hooked up with Nas was that they caught wind of a, a, one of his songs, which actually takes a shot at a Fox News. Let's take a listen. Watch what you watching. Fox keeps feeding us toxins. Stop sleeping. Start thinking outside of the box and unplug from the matrix doctrine. But watch what you say, big brother is watching. Watch what you watching. Fox keeps So we shall see what happens when uh, these signatures are delivered. Do you think we'll see it on Fox? Look, there's a rapper at our doorstep. <laughs> All right, so moving on. Uh, You know, penguins and polar bears are at opposite sides of the globe. Penguins down at south, polar Mm -hmm. bears up north. But there's an Australian ecologist who says if the worst predictions of global warming come true, polar bears may have to be relocated maybe to the South Pole. Uh, It's an article in the journal Science. He says assisted colonization, helping them adapt to an alternate habitat, could be one of the few ways you could preserve that species so, you know, but of course, another biologist from Duke says shipping polar bears to Antarctica is a bad idea because, you know, invasive species can sure. wreak havoc. You don't know what would happen if you sent the polar bears to live with the penguins. I think you might know. I think we might know. And you know what? I think that's going to be it for the ramble today. You can get these stories online at our website, npr.org slash Brian Park. That was a memorable ramble, Tricia. Thanks, Allison. She's- The Dark Knight earned over $158 million in its opening weekend, thanks in part to a broad fan base and probably some great reviews, including tremendous accolades for the late Heath Ledger as the Joker. The New Republic's Christopher Orr writes, It's a difficult performance to rate on any conventional scale, a whirlwind of energy and effects, ticks and tells, Brando and Hopkins and Nicholson thrown in a blender, set to puree, and then dynamited mid-spin. Here's a clip. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. I only have one question. Where is Harvey Dent? You know where Harvey is? We're not intimidated by thugs. You know, you remind me of my father. I hate my father. Now, the actor died just six months ago, almost to the day of an accidental drug overdose. And Ledger's performance has demented and a tormented Joker has been deemed Oscar-worthy by more than one critic. Tom O'Neill of the L.A. Times wrote about the possibility of him winning an Oscar. Tom, you're in studio. This is nice to see you. <laughs> good to see you here. Yeah. So first of all, do you think that Heath Ledger's performance is as good as everyone has been talking about or as, as, as stunning, I guess, is the word? 
Sure, but that's not what they vote on at the Oscars. Right. <laughs> no, nobody gave Nicole Kidman an Oscar for one scene in a plastic nose in a movie called The Worst of the Year by Time Magazine. She had bust up with Tom Cruise. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hours had all this artistic potential, pre- pretense. So, uh, But that's not why they vote for Oscars. But I, I had, just had to slip that snide comment sure, in there. Sure, <laughs> of course. But his performance, just, you, yeah, what did you it think? Yeah, it was brilliant, of course, yeah. What did, what did is, you think of it? I haven't seen the movie yet. Oh, shame, shame. Oh, I just well, you're such Tom, a slave a, to this job. I just had a baby. You, oh, know, okay. this, you can't get out that much when you just have a baby. Um, but it is on my list, should I ever find a babysitter. Uh, what is it about the performance that has people just going over the top with, with, the, with the accolades? Well, he reinvented this classic uh, villain mm-hmm. that we've become familiar with. And actually, this was the first villain in the Batman lore, so it's the most important in that, in that sense. But just if you remember Jack Nicholson's portrayal back in 89 uh, with the perfect makeup and and the cackling laugh, Ledger does the exact opposite of everything. There's no – he rarely laughs. I think Mm. – I can't remember him laughing at all in the movie. And the smeared makeup, it's it's this brilliant reinvention. And then add that element of the fact that he's really dead. He portrays this guy who can't be killed on on screen. And that adds such an an extra creepy quality to a creepy character that it's like – Reality horror movies, I would think of it. Wow, that's an interesting idea to think about. Uh, what is the likelihood of a nomination for Heath Ledger? Definite. Yes, why? Yes. Well, because there's such an industry outpouring over this mm-hmm. role. And also he was cheated the year of Brokeback Mountain, of that's course. That's interesting. Okay, yeah. so tell us a little bit about, for people who don't understand the inner workings of the way the Academy thinks, why would you not give it to him one year when he probably really deserves it versus a year when he maybe deserves it, but there are other amazing performances this year as well. Right, because the Oscars have a different agenda. New York film critics named Heath Ledger best actor for Brokeback Mountain. Mm -hmm. The Oscars, like everybody else, gave it to Philip Seymour Hoffman for what I think is one of the worst performances in film history. Was for Capote? For Capote. We all know Truman Capote was this flamboyant firecracker Mm -hmm. of a character, and his portrayal was this dark, stoic, kind of morose character, which Truman was not, but he was trying to do this angst-driven artiste number, uh, Hoffman was. But anyway, that aside... Mm. um, the problem is now is that only one person has ever won an Oscar from the grave, and that was uh, Peter Finch for Network. And he had just died a few weeks before the Oscar ceremony. Mm-hmm. Literally, he was campaigning for the Golden Globes. He was pumping hands in the lobby of the Beverly Hilton Hotel. Drop dead. Really? <laughs> yes, yes. Wow. And, and Hollywood was so overwhelmed with grief it, it just, just at the time they got their ballots that he won. Heath Ledger is going to be dead a year exactly when Oscar yeah. nominations come out. Will that matter? I don't know. Well, let's listen. For people who don't remember Peter Finch's performance, I think we have a little bit of it from, uh, from Network. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. So, I want you to get up now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell... I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm riled up already. Yeah, Wasn't this an Oscar-worthy performance? Of course it was. But yeah. that year, Robert De Niro was winning every award in sight for Taxi Driver. Oh. And only the death of Finch reversed that so that uh, he suddenly won the Golden Globe, then the Oscar. Two movies with lines that people repeat reportedly, re- repeatedly, you're talking to me? <laughs> uh, the case of Spencer Tracy. Tell people about this. This is really fascinating because he died in 1967 just 
hours after the cameras went off for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, mm. a Best Picture nominee. Catherine Hepburn was nominated as well. Hepburn really had a minor role in the film, and it wasn't very emotionally flamboyant, but he gave this magnificent performance, this soliloquy at the end of, of the movie, which was one of the great, great mm-hmm. soliloquies in Oscar history. Everybody assumed he, was, he would win that year, but when he died, it was at least six or eight months before the Oscar ceremony. And then what was interesting about the Oscar outcome is not only did he lose... Hepburn won. Hmm. So in other words, they wanted to recognize this death with an embrace, but they didn't want to hug the dead guy. Hepburn, of course, was his de facto widow. Right, right. So you were talking a little bit earlier about the timing factor might actually work against a win for Ledger. But you really think a nomination. Yes, and I think he can win. I think the outpouring is there. This also will be his last opportunity, too. That's sort of the the other sad part about it. It's a cool, hard place, Alison. Hollywood is. You're six feet under, you're out of mind sometimes. (laughs) So one of the things I'm, I'm interested also about is the role itself in terms of big, splashy comic book roles or, you know, comic novel roles as opposed to things like The Hours, as you mentioned earlier. Do people tend to get nominated? I'm trying to remember. The only thing I can think of recently, maybe uh, Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean was the only sort of comic-y, big, splashy mm-hmm. person to be nominated in a role. So that's a good example. Jack Nicholson did not get nominated for the original Joker, mm-hmm. even though he was nominated by the Golden Globes. The only cartoonish villain in modern times that, or ever, I guess, that was ever nominated at the Oscars was Al Pacino for playing, what was a big bad boy Caprice from Dick Tracy. Oh. But that's it. So. so they don't really appreciate these popcorn movies. But I'll tell you what a wonderful, interesting wild card is, and that, it, and that is villainous roles rarely won Oscars in the old days. You had Kathy Bates in Misery and you had Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. Otherwise, they liked the inspiring heroic roles. But lately, we've seen Hollywood's dark side emerge. Last year. Three of the four winners last year were villains. Javier Bardem, Tilda Swinton, and Daniel Day-Lewis. And the year before, we had Forrest Whitaker as Idi Amin. So, you know... This, this bodes well for Heath. It's possible. Tom O'Neill writes the Gold Derby column for the L.A. Times. Thank you for coming into the studio. That's <laughs> a pleasure. You. Nice. Oh, it's always a pleasure. It's nice to see you. Same. All right. Fate is the name of a kid-friendly computer game. Fate is the name of a magazine about a strange and unknown things like UFOs. Fate is the title of the new release from the Philadelphia-based band Dr. Dog. When Dr. Dog stopped by the studios last week to talk to BPP swing host Mike Pesca, the frontman Scott McMicken stepped up to the mic and he and Pesca discussed the difficulty of having some pretty ubiquitous musical influences. I think I've read, but you know, you guys can fill me in. Some of the influences are the really melodic groups like the Beach Boys and the Beatles. Uh, you actually, I also read Tom Waits, but who's, who wants to talk about being a big fan of those, those groups? Nobody on this planet. <laughs> <laughs> Why? It's been talked about too much? Oh, yeah. It's it's hard to say something interesting about loving the Beatles and the Beach Boys, but it is true. You know, they just sort of get into your consciousness and they uh, really inform your ears. And, and I think it happens for a lot of musicians. You know, it's hard to deny the impact that those bands had on uh, pop music. And so... You know, they kind of go in there and they sit in your shoulders and they tell you what sounds right and what doesn't. And um, it's a really good, uh, in my opinion, it's a really good kind of fallback kind of um, influence, you know, because there's such intelligence and efficiency and um, talent and subtlety to those bands that... In many ways, I feel like the Beach Boys and the Beatles are underrated bands. They oddly are. Enough. I think what they are is taken for granted. Yeah, that's right. And they're really important. Okay, let's you know play a song. What's the first one? You, what's the first one up you want to share with us? Uh, it's called "Uncovering the Old." 
All right, Uncovering the Old from the new album by Dr. Dog, Fate. Let's give a listen. Right, that was uncovering the old. Now I read this thing. This album's called Fate because it's a concept album, but it was sort of a retroactive concept album. You didn't realize it was a concept album until all the songs were done. You're like, hey, they're all about fate. Scott, you wrote all the songs or most of the songs? Half the songs. Toby and I always okay. write about half the songs for album. We keep it about fifty fifty. But uh, I mean that 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 is a, a valid point in a sense, in very general terms. But it wasn't so retroactive. I mean, it was it was that we started making the album. 
and then within a few weeks realized that uh, you know having opened ourselves up to the to these ideas that were unintentionally coming back at us from the speakers at that point we then you know put forth more intent into what we were already observing and so um, at that point we did um, you know kind of craft it around what we were starting to notice this process became this kind of manifestation of fate or something that you could see as wow we are witnessing this fated event I mean we've become this certain band at this certain point and there's so much involved in that that we need to bring to this and as soon as we did the process itself started to bring as much to us. It's the kind of thing that I live for, you know, and it's not the kind of thing you always get. All right. The guys from Dr. Dog, the new album, and life in general is fate. Thanks, guys. Thank thanks you. for having us, Blake. All right. That was great. Thanks a lot. Hey, big thanks to Dr. Dog for joining Mike Pesca in our studios last week. We'll post a longer version of that interview with another in-studio song performance. That, of course, will be on our website, npr.org slash Park. Next up on this here program, the BPP's Caitlin Kenny is in the studio for our next stage of grief, bargaining. This is the BPP from NPR News. joining the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. However you listen to us, we love it, whether that be digital, FM, Sirius Satellite Radio, or online at npr.org slash Park. I'm Allison Stewart, and coming up, the third stage of grief, bargaining as we work our way through our last week. Right now, though, we're going to get some headlines from the BPP's Mark Garrison. This is NPR Thanks, Allison. At Guantanamo Naval Base, the first war crimes trial since World War II is underway. On trial, the man the U.S. says was Osama bin Laden's personal driver. NPR's John McChesney was there for opening arguments. The prosecutor opened by saying that Salam Hamdan, the accused, knew the target of the first hijacked plane. Navy Lieutenant Commander Timothy Stone said that Hamdan heard bin Laden say the plane was headed for the Dome, a reference Stone said to the U.S. Capitol building. The plane crashed in a Pennsylvania field. Stone said Hamdan was one of the few who knew the destination. Defense lawyer Harry Schneider told the jury panel that Hamdan was just a low-level salaryman who needed a job. Prosecutors also presented a witness who said the car driven by Hamdan was carrying two surface-to-air missiles. But under cross-examination, he acknowledged that he wasn't certain which car Hamdan was driving when apprehended. Hamdan faces a maximum life sentence if convicted. The trial could take two or three weeks. NPR's John McChesney reporting from Guantanamo. Before terrorism was a household word, piracy scared people. Pirates haven't gone away, they're just more high-tech now. They stormed a cargo ship off the coast of Somalia. Its Filipino sailors are now hostages. Africa's waters are a hot spot for pirates, especially off the coast of Somalia and Nigeria. The Philippine government says it will not pay a ransom. Democratic presidential candidate Barack Obama is wrapping up his Middle East tour. He's in Israel today, meeting with Israeli and Palestinian leaders. 
Obama will speak in Germany on Thursday. His Republican challenger John McCain is on American soil, but still plenty of talk about what happens overseas, namely Iraq. Both candidates have different ideas about how and when American troops should leave. New Hampshire Public Radio's Josh Rogers is covering McCain's visit to that state. John McCain didn't spell out the terms of any possible withdrawal during a town hall meeting in Rochester, but he did stress that the troops would return home in what he termed honor and victory. Everybody recognizes, including Prime Minister Maliki, that we have to have conditions-based withdrawal. And we all are, we are going to withdraw. We will withdraw. The fact is, is whether we withdraw in victory or whether we withdraw in defeat. McCain attacked Barack Obama's Iraq policy, saying Obama was wrong to oppose the troop surge and wrong to support a timetable for a troop pullout. McCain also claimed Obama would choose to lose the war if it could win him the election. New Hampshire Public Radio's Josh Rogers reporting, and that's the news for the moment. You can get more online at NPR.org. This is NPR. Here on the Bryant Park Project this week, we're trying to help you, our faithful audience, and we'll help ourselves, frankly, work through the grief of the loss of this fine program. Obviously, we're the last few shows, and, and we've been going through the five stages of grief through one of our regular features, the best song in the world today. On Monday, we expressed denial. Yesterday, it was anger. And today, it's bargaining. I'm joined by producer Caitlin Kenny. Hey, Allison. Yeah, I'm here to talk about the third stage of grief. Bargaining involves, you know, a little bit of denial. You know that the end is coming, but you just hope that there's something that you can do to change it. Maybe if you just try harder or be better, you'll be saved. It's really just total and utter desperation, down on your knees, begging and pleading. Please don't let this happen. And I think Abba said it best. If you change your mind, take a chance on the first in line. Honey, I'm still free. Take a chance on me. If you need me, let me know. Gonna be around. If you got no place to go, when you're feeling down. I'm down with the whole Mamma Mia of it all and everything, but I, I'm really not sure this is the best bargaining song. I mean, this is sort of the best I'm desperate, please help me, please take really pity on me. I, well, you know, not really dis Abba. I just, I'm thinking that when I think about bargaining, I think about I'm going to do something, I'm going to change something to get something else to reach the desired goal of wanting you to want me. I mean, I think Cheap Trick says it best. lyrics are way better. Gonna do my very best and it ain't no lie. If you put me to the test, if you let me try, now that's real bargaining. No, that's real begging. Mine is about offering an exchange. I'll shine up my brown shoes. I'll put on a brand new shirt. I'll get home early from work if you say you love me. I'll do something. Abba to talks get about back. we can dance together. We can sing together. I mean, this is real bargaining. This is Somebody real. Somebody drink the Mamma Mia Kool-Aid. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Let's stop here for a minute. Maybe, just maybe, you have a point. Maybe it doesn't have to be you or me. Maybe, in the true spirit of bargaining, we can find some common ground here. I'm okay with that. Absolutely. We don't have a lot of time left, after all, and I sort of see your point, (laughs) and I do love Cheap Trick. 
And we aren't the only ones dealing with this. The thing is, the people on our blog, they're the ones doing the real bargaining on behalf of us. They've come up with a lot of ways to save the show. A lot of practical ways. Sarah Lee suggested making an hour long instead of two. That could work. Save us a lot of time and energy, too. Jen said she was ready to put on her camouflage and fight the man against this injustice. Talk about girl power. And such hope. Janet listed the number for NPR Listener Services, which is 202-513-3232, by the way, if you happen to be by the phone. And she said that listeners should tell them again and again what they think about canceling the show. Well, thanks, Janet. Yeah. And Megan Shanley, she used the blog to write an angry letter to the, quote, higher-ups, expressing just exactly how she was feeling and how upset she was. And even a lot of people offered up their money. That's serious. It totally is. Rob King pledged $50, and Andy Orr offered to organize a personal fund drive, or as he put it, a money bomb. <laughs> That's not love. I don't know what is. And of course, we can't forget the Radio Sweethearts and their campaign, a la Ferris Bueller, to save us, giving birth to the Save the BPP Facebook group. Well, thanks to all of them for trying to bargain they with the big lot- guys. They're trying. They really have a lot of good ideas. And, you know, I get it. I don't, I don't want to let go either. I haven't cleaned my desk or my <laughs> inbox or, or anything because I, I still have hope that we can be saved. I really believe in everything we've done here, and, and maybe all of us together, maybe we can really do something. You know, there's a chance, and I'm just not ready to let go. So maybe the real submission today for the best song in the world should be We Can Work It Out by The Beatles. We can work it out. Life is very short, and there's no can work it out by the Beatles, the best song in the world today, expressing the third stage of grief, bargaining. Are your fingers crossed over there, Caitlin? Is that I'm what I hoping, see? I'm hoping. I'm hoping. I'm nervous, <laughs> but you know, we can. We can work it out. We can work it out. We can work it Now, most of the time when you bargain with this nameless, faceless, higher power, you don't get a response. But in the case of the Bryant Park Project audience, well, I got to say, the interim CEO of NPR is a brave man. And he ventured into our blog to respond to some of your your offers, your bargaining offers. Uh, as for the people who wanted to uh, give money in some way, the response, which you can read on our blog, was... Many offered to contribute directly to BPP. It's unclear, that's the word people use when they don't know the answer, that this would work. All right, so that's not going to happen. Um, for those of you who raised the possibility of that we might just be a web-only show, just kind of drop the multi-platform, <laughs> just be on one platform, the response, again, you can read it in context on our website from the interim CEO is, here's the quote, some of you have raised the possibility of continuing BPP solely as a website. This suggestion is a good place for future consideration, but for a variety of reasons, not something we're able to undertake today with our existing resources. So the bargaining phase is officially over. <laughs> I think that's what we can say. We're moving on to depression. That'll be on tomorrow's edition of the Bryant Park Project.
Okay, so we may not get what we want, but we'll give you what you want. The most emailed, most popular stories from the interweb. Let's do the most. They can take a tragedy and make it a segue. (laughs) I'm a professional. (laughs) What do you have, Ian? Well, I got a couple, actually. The first is a a most popular from WFAA-TV in Dallas-Fort Worth. There was a break-in. This actually happened in Washington. There was a a break-in at a Fred Meyer department store. A hammock, several pillows... Additional sleeping supplies were stolen. Police followed a trail of cardboard and uh, pillows and found the offenders. One was sleeping in a stolen hammock and the other on a pile of stolen pillows. Uh, that hammock was allegedly stolen <laughs> in a field. Good job, Dad Patrick. Good job. <laughs> Trish taught me well. So uh, the police photographed the men before arresting them. Uh, I'm going to put this up on the blog. I'll, I'll show you right now. He's really peaceful. Okay, it's really that's cute. really funny. Poor I mean, little guy. He was tired from all the thieving. That guy was committed to taking a nap. <laughs> he was ready to nap. Uh, uh, the last line of the article, uh, Officer Willis says alcohol was involved. Surprising. <laughs> Did not see that uh, coming. And the reason I have two, I have uh, uh, two alcohol-related crimes. The, the second this is becoming here, your beat, Ian. <laughs> Yeah, I'm also committing a lot of alcohol-related <laughs> crimes out there. Look for that. Allegedly. Allegedly. No, I can confirm. Uh, the, uh, this is a most viewed from the San Luis Obispo Tribune, a uh, good paper. Uh, apparently, the, the man who lit his friend's crotch on fire at a bar has been sentenced. Um, that, that apparently is a, is a felony crime. Um, yeah, yeah, he's sent us. What was the backstory there prison. again? <laughs> they were uh, they were having fun. The, the men, it's always fun when somebody's was. crotch is on fire. <laughs> bar bet leads to that sort of. The men result. were uh, the men routinely drank together and played practical jokes on each other. This, I believe, was the first one resulting in uh, second and third degree burns in unnameable places. Oh, no. They're nameable. I'm just not going to do it. All right. Thank you. (laughs) They all have names. Laura Silver, the number one most emailed at the BBC. What could it be? Well, it's about Allah and it's about meat. It's about the name of Allah being found in meat in Nigeria. Yep. Forget about the Virgin Mary and grilled cheese sandwiches. Jesus on a waffle? None yeah, of that. Yeah, well, same vein. <laughs> or same highway vein. overpasses. Highway <laughs> overpasses. Um, yep. It lo- you know, I looked at this online. It looks like a petrified piece of stone or something, but it- it's a piece of beef, and actually three of them were found in this restaurant in Nigeria. I think and, the important um, question, Laura, is was the meat halal? You know, I had the same question. I have another question. Mm-hmm. What kind of... What kind of characters was it written in? In Arabic. In Arabic. Yeah. And you're not supposed to write the name of Allah on anything. Right. Let alone meat. Well, well maybe is that is Allah it, or Muhammad? Well, you know. We gotta do some more research. This brings up thing. no. It brings up an interesting question because a few years ago, a tropical fish was found in England, and it had both Allah's name and Muhammad's name on it, supposedly. And um, you know, there's also a tradition, India found a miracle, chapati was found in India. So I was feeling a little left out, and I was looking for the last half hour for instances of Jewish symbols found in food. I couldn't find anything. I think we ate all those Not symbols. so much. I know. I, it, it's really a bummer. <laughs> Pashman. Hey, guys. I got a, a most emailed here from Yahoo News. 
climate protester tries to glue himself to British Prime Minister. Ouch! A climate change protester unsuccessfully tried to super glue himself to Gordon Brown at an event... They were at an event, and Gordon Brown was shaking hands, working the crowd, and this guy, 24-year-old member of a group called Plain Stupid, P-L-A-N-E, he's protesting airport extension. They want to expand Heathrow Airport. He went to shake Gordon Brown's hand with super glue on his hand in an attempt to stay stuck to the prime minister. He told the prime minister he was carrying carrying out a nonviolent protest and told Brown, quote, we cannot shake away climate change like you can just shake away my arm. Now, I'm not an expert on these things, but I'm pretty sure that having an extra human being attached to you increases your carbon footprint. Um, but anyway... It might make you more efficient. Yeah. I, also, I would also not... I would also maybe call that possibly a violent crime in a way. I mean, you're... Yeah. You know, well, there's some sort of, like, restraint. Uh, Scotland Yard is downplaying the incident. They said, as far as they're concerned, nothing really happened. Um, and, uh, Move no, along. Nothing to see. Move yeah, along. No police action Cheerio. was taken against the man. Gordon's fine. Chris Brown's fine. Trisha, for you. Um, So I have, once again, I'm uh, reporting on what's on Google Trends this morning. Among the top uh, 20 search terms are WNBA fight and WNBA brawl. Why is awesome this video? Yeah, it's a great video. I would have played a radio clip. You can't really hear anything. Um, so, So last night there was a game between the L.A. Sparks and the Detroit Shock. And I guess they really are living up to their names. It was in the last five seconds of the game, there was this little brawl that broke out. Um, it was between, well, I guess Candace Parker and uh, a player who uh, named uh, something Pearson. I forget her first name. I'll have to I'll have to get that. This is really small print. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> Candace Parker got knocked down accidentally, and then uh, it turned into a little brawl. It wasn't on camera, so you can't really see how it started, but a bunch of players got involved, and, in, and uh, three players ended up being ejected from the game, along with um, one of the coaches on the sideline who came in, and actually his name is Rick Mahorn, and he pushed Lisa Leslie down. You can see her, like him, like mm-hmm. kind of sending her halfway down the court. He says he was just trying to break up the fight. He would never have pushed her. You know, he was just trying to protect everything. So we'll see. I guess if anybody gets punished for this. Yeah. But. Well, you know, Rick Mahorn, he was a player on the Detroit Pistons, member of the teams known as the Bad Boys. So he's been in a few brawls himself. Now he's a coach. But he, yeah. he used to be a fighter. you got to go to the video. The that bit is on the video. I, I think there's a case for both sides on that. But anyway, so three players, and he, and he got ejected from the game. List number eight on Google Trends. And finally, mine is one of the most viewed at the Wall Street Journal, exiling the Happy Meal. There are L.A. lawmakers who claim that in this one part of Los Angeles, the lower-income part, there are some 400 fast food restaurants. And they want to stop others from coming into the community because they have huge obesity issues and health issues. But, of course, the other side of the story is anybody should be able to open up anywhere. and People should have self-control and blah, 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 as you know. So I don't know where y'all weigh on this story. Pardon the pun. Well, you know, they have green cart. They're starting this green carts initiative in New York to bring fruits and vegetables to lower-income neighborhoods as, like, another opportunity. Sort of like we have the fruit cart down the block here. I mean, that still doesn't address the issue that cheeseburgers are good that if they have the cheese on the bottom especially yes dan laura ian trisha thank you for the most you're welcome cheeseburger seems like a good place to stand the most what can i say (laughs) hey that's it for this hour of the bpp we're always online at npr.org slash bryant park i'm allison stewart you've been listening to the bryant park project we're really happy about that we're from npr news